0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We've been looking at the laws, the halakhot of um, Kriyat Shema, of the recitation of Shema. We're going to continue doing that today. I hope to finish. Maybe we'll finish. Maybe not. I promised Bernie we would get to how and when you hold the tzitzit, and that will be our end point. Whether we'll make it by the end of class today or not, I can't say. All right? Any questions lingering from the last few weeks other than Bernie's question about could you please tell us definitively when and how to hold the tzitzit? So we're going to get to that. But other than that, are there any lingering questions? Okay, so we've been looking at the Shulchan Aruch. I'm going to go back to the Shulchan Aruch. Okay. This is what I think we were up to. We're, we're still in Arachim, uh, chapter 61, paragraph 24. I think we did this last time. I'm just going to start with it. You have, you're supposed to <coughs> recite the Shema with Ta'amim is the Hebrew word for trope with the trope as it is printed in the Torah. Haga note. So again, the big print is, uh, or the first statement in English, is written by the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, Sephardi Authority. The glosses or notes are added by the Ramah, Ashkenazi Authority, where Ashkenazi custom differs from Sephardic. And he says, In our lands, in Ashkenazi world, it's not our practice to recite it with the trope. And he says, but at any rate, those who are exacting in how they perform the meets vote, they are strict about this. So he's saying, you know what? You don't need to do it with the trope, but if people do that, then that is great. All right. Um, so if you go can you make, to, a, can you make the print a little bit lo- larger? Can I make it larger? Yeah. If you click on the A, ooh, I hold on. I muted you. All right, wait. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's fine. Oh, oh you muted. Okay, Is the, how's this? Perfect. Better? Okay, good. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Okay. Um, so as I said this last time, if you go to a Mizrahi or Sephardi shul, Sephardi in terms of Sephardic temple in, in Los Angeles, I don't know. But when I say Sephardi, I mean really Mizrahi, North African, uh, Middle Eastern shul. They recite almost all of the davening, all aloud together, and the entire Shema will be chanted aloud. What is our vestige of this custom in our standard Ashkenazi shuls? The first line. Well, actually, the first line, we generally don't chant with the trope. Because the trope is would be Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokei No Hashem Echad. So actually, Dafka, we don't do that first line. What do we tend to do with the trope? When so, well, time when we see the first it, the trope. that is with the trope. Okay. So in schools, we all, many of us grew up in. Uh, if you grew up in a American, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, non-Orthodox shul, they all sang the Ve'ahavta aloud together, and it's done with the trope, and that is kind of our vestige of this custom. Okay, I'm scrolling down, unless someone strongly wants to comment on that further. Kishi Omar, when one says, ukshartam la'ot al-yadecha, you should bind it as a sign upon your hand, Yimashmesh bitfilin shalyad, you should touch your arm tefillin. Ukshomar When you say they should be your, your front, for frontlets between your eyes, you should touch your head filling. And when you say, oto, Bernie, pay attention. When you say, so so actually before well, I'm going to pause for a second in the middle of this paragraph. So different people do it differently if they observe this Minhog, some people actually touch their tefillin and kiss their hand because if you touched your tefillin all the time and did hand kissing, you would end up rubbing off the black polish. Um, I took my trillin off. because I should have kept it on because I wanted to demonstrate it. A lot of people will do, which they will take a strap of their tefillin, touch it to the box and kiss it. Okay. Again, that's just an elaborated form of the minhog. What's the idea behind this? You shouldn't be wearing the ot al-yadecha and the totafot bene necha when you're saying the paragraph and kind of ignore the connection between the words that you're saying and the fact that you're enacting those things in the mitzvah of tefillin, right? So you should somehow connect the words that you are saying to the mitzvah of tefillin. How you do that, you take notice. It doesn't say, think about it. It says, do this thing. So again, um, so you, you touch it and there are various ways of touching it. And when you say, and you shall see it, what's the it? The? Tzitzit. Tzitzit. Yimashne, yemashmesh bishne Tzitziot Shilafanav. You should touch the two Tzitzit which are in front of you. So there is no mention here in the Shulchan Aruch, I, I just want to stress this, there is no mention in the Shulchan Aruch of what? Gathering the four tzitzit. Gathering four tzitzit. And if you read the, the laws in Ahav it doesn't say anything about gathering the four tzitzit, out, okay? Around you. You know, when we say uh, gather us from the four corners of the earth, that's when you're supposed to gather your four tzitzit. You hold your four tzitzit through the entire Shema and you kiss them, okay? None of that is in the Shulchan Aruch. The first time I studied this, I was so struck because I thought, like, oh my god! I thought that goes back to Mount Sinai. You know, every rabbi in every shul I has ever been announced who makes announcements says that we gather the four corners of the talit as if this, this is the most universal minhag in the Jewish world, and it's not. And it says, see above chapter 24 we're going to go we're going to look at chapter 24 in a moment by the way according to the Shulchan Aruch, how would you touch your two tzitzit you right and there's all kinds of customs about this because it's to see them um if you go to a Mizrahi shul Judeo-Arabic they will actually put it on their eyes when they say oritemoto okay some people have the minhag just to look at them like this here look at me everyone look up at me Okay, so there's different practices of how to do that. But no, just want to point out, nothing here about gathering your four tzitzit. Okay, we're going to go on. We'll, we'll come back to the tzitzit, I promise. Some people have the custom to recite the whole Shema aloud, as is done today in Sephardi shules, and some people have the custom to recite it. Softly. softly, gloss, Ashkenazi, right? The Ramah is reminding you, umikomakom, at any rate, yomru psucheh rishon bikol ram. It should really be, I think it's a um, typo. It should be pasuk rishon Bikol ram v'cheh noagin. As we said earlier, at any rate, you should say the first line aloud, that's the Shma line, and this is the practice, right? Why does he say this is the practice? Because... In the first line by the author, it says some people have this custom and some people have that custom about the whole Shema. The Rama in his gloss is saying, regardless of what your custom is about saying the whole thing aloud or not, you should say the first line aloud. He's just reiterating what we've read before. And this is the practice, meaning not some people say, have the minhag to say the first line aloud, and some people do not. But rather, this is what you do. Okay? I'm going on to paragraph 62. Um, You're supposed to, paragraph 1, you're supposed to be precise. Remember, we had all those things about not connecting letters and not swallowing letters. Paragraph 2, very interesting. You may read the Shema in any language. You do not have to read it in Hebrew. To fulfill your mitzvah, of reciting the Shema, however, in whatever language you read it, you must be as pronounced, as as pronounce it as enunciating correctly as you are required in Hebrew. So just as in Hebrew, you don't turn an aleph into an ayin or a chet into a hay, and you don't run letters together and you separate between words. Okay, especially if one word. And with the same letter that the next word starts with, as we read last week, if you're reading it in English or in any other language, you have to enunciate it clearly, meaning the recitation of the Shema must be done with all the letters clearly. Everyone with me on that? Larry, you you pointed your finger and had a smile when I said, read it in any language. I just thought it was interesting about necessarily being makhpid in whatever language. And I, I assume the reason is so that you are clearly understood. Yes. And right. I, I also think that that has important value for us, that our governors, if they choose to read, they should be very clear in what they're reading. So e, rec- they should be very clear what they're reading. And this is saying, the, the, I mean, what are the two prayers that you were required to say? Shema and the Amida, the most statutory prayers, even the recitation of the Shema, which goes back to mission times, which is such an important mitzvah. You fulfill your mitzvah totally if you recite, if you say, I don't know Hebrew, I don't read Hebrew, or let's just say part of it you read in Hebrew, part of it you're um, not familiar with the second paragraph in Hebrew because we never do it aloud in non-Orthodox shuls. And so I do that one in English. Um, you have fulfilled your obligation, as long as you enunciate everything clearly. Paragraph three. This is important. Yes? What about reading it versus saying it without... Oh, it? We're going to say it. We're, uh, Terry's, Terry knows what the author is going to say in the next paragraph. Paragraph three. ma mi Your ear has to hear the words that you are saying, which means you do not think the shema. Um, we all, I'm sure we've all learned somewhere along the line and, you know, I don't know, took any English class in college or anything like that. Um, silent reading is a relatively late invention in human history. In ancient times, no one used to read silently as far as we know, right? I'm going to read a book and they sat and read silently. Things were recited. They were read aloud. And this says, you have to You have to hear the words of your own Shema. That does not mean that the person next to you needs to hear the words of your own Shema. Okay? But you must hear the the words of your own Shema. Meaning, it's real, Kriyat Shema, by the way, Kriya, in modern Israeli, means reading. In ancient Hebrew, it means recitation. Okay? It's really the recitation of the Shema. It sounds like this. Did my mic pick that up or not? Okay? It means you whisper. The im lo he If your ear did not hear your words, if you did not recite them, uh, you know, audibly. Can you scroll down a little bit, Avi? Uh, okay. Yeah, paragraph three, though, which is right at the top. Oh, oh, you did. Sorry. Thank you. That's okay. Paragraph three, right? But if you didn't do it this way, yatsa, you have fulfilled your obligation as long as your lips are moving, which means you're not silently reading the Shema. You are supposed to be audibly to yourself reciting the whole Shema. Okay. If you didn't, you fulfilled your obligation. Fulfilled your obligation means you don't have to go back and say it again. Remember we said, if you didn't say your first line with Kavana, you have not fulfilled your obligation. Which means you have to go back and say it again. So now he's saying, here's the correct way to do it. If you did it wrong, you don't have to go back and recite it again as long as your lips were moving, meaning it is truly, uh, I guess if you're, if you're listening to this while you're after the fact on the, on, 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 uh, our channel while you're walking around the track or exercising, then you won't have the visual, but minimally with the visual, you're supposed to be going and it would be better than that if it's audible to your ear. Terry, does that answer your question? Yes. And it also addresses another issue from the Tanakh where there's the whole discussion of um, Hana. Hana. Correct. Exactly. So Eli does not recognize what Hana is doing. Right. right. Uh, because people didn't pray that way. Right. Kind of the short answer. Historically speaking, I mean, that's one interpretation of that misunderstanding between Eli and Chana and that Haftorah that we read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Paragraph four, a little out. We give you a little out here. O-U-T, we give you an out. Im mechamat o ones acher. If because of illness or some other unavoidable circumstance, the unavoidable circumstance might be... The time, you're, you're an early commuter. The time for Shema arrives while you are sitting on the bus or the train. It's time to recite the Shema. If your lips are moving, everyone sitting next to you on the New York City subway will think you're an insane person and move away from you, okay? Or if you just don't have the energy, some sort of compulsion or illness. Shema <laughs> bilibo, if you read, you said Shema in your mind, which means totally silently, you will fulfill your obligation. Okay. And by the way, also this says if you're in a, in a dirty place, okay, which means a place with, you know, whatever, a dirty place. Uh, you know, there are places of filth where you're not supposed to study Torah, like the outhouse, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, you know, the, the pre-modern world was dirty. Yeah. Um. So any questions about that? So the correct way to say the Shema is audibly, the best way is audibly to yourself. That's how you should do it, says the Shulchan Aruch. If you didn't do it it audibly, but at least your lips were moving okay, meaning you're, again, this is about enunciating the words. It is a recitation. It's not a thinking of prayer. It is a saying of words of the Torah, And third, if you just can't for some reason, if you're not in an appropriate place, you're in a dirty place, you don't have the energy, you're sick, it's okay if you just thought it in your mind, okay? But notice you just read it silently in your mind without lips moving. That is only a concession to unusual circumstance. That is not the norm. Your jaw is wired shut. Thank you. If your jaw's wired shut, you are perfectly permissible to just say it in your mind. Good example. And this is a reiteration. Sharif <speaking in Hebrew> shots the Shliach Tzibur, the Chazan. Israel. Chazan must recite the first line aloud, Kahal <speaking in Hebrew> so that the whole kahal hears it. Viamlichu Shem Shamayim Biyachad, because they are declaring the kingdom of heaven. Together, Meaning this is an important communal enactment. This is the basis of why we sing the Shema together the way we do. Okay. It, it, we are supposed to, as a congregation in unison, be declaring God's kingship. Okay. I think we're not going to do any of this. Excuse me, if I'm making you dizzy, this, by the way, says, you know, like the Mishnah says, you can do the Shema anywhere. If you're a worker on the top of the tree, when the Shema time comes along, you stop what you're doing and you recite Shema. I mean, you don't have to be in synagogue. You can be standing, you can be sitting. Here it is right here. Paragraph eight, craftsmen, which means workers, Homeowners who are doing work on the top of a tree, top of the walls of the building, recite the recitation of Shema in their place that you don't even need to come down, right? The time for Shema arrives, uh, which is um, the earliest is, is uh, you know, between when you can recognize your friend at six feet away or when you can recognize the difference between green and blue, or you can differ, recognize the difference between blue and white. There are various um, criteria given, but it's basically dawn. Once dawn has broken right? If you start your day before dawn, you don't recite Shema. When dawn breaks, you recite Shema, you pause wherever you are, okay? That means you pull over your car to the side of the road, and you say Shema. Look at this, hakataf, a porter, is someone who carries things for a living. Even though he is walking and carrying things, kore kriyat Shema, recites the Shema. Okay, but but you shouldn't start it, you know, you shouldn't load it in the middle of your Shema because that's a distraction. But if your job is to be a porter, you have all your stuff balanced, Shema time arrives, you pause, you don't have to put it down, and you say the Shema. The point being, by the way, and the Mishnah and the Talmud explain why this is, the basis for all this is meaning wherever you are on your way, if you're a tree trimmer and you're on the top of the tree and the Shema time has arrived, you stop trimming, okay? And you focus and you say the Shema. Wherever you are in your daily life. Okay, Um, I think we're going to skip all this. I just want to see if there's anything else. Okay, now I'm going to go to... So, um, you wanted me to make it larger... Okay, so the other place where it talks about the tzitzit in the Shulchan Aruch is in the laws of tzitzit, which is paragraph 24 and other paragraphs. In other words, if I said to you, in an organizational scheme of your law code, where would you place the laws of the rules of how you hold your tzitzit during the Shema? The answer would probably be logically, well, I could put it in the laws of the recitation of Shema, or I could put it in the laws of what you do with tzitzit. So the laws of tzitzit are how you tie the tzitzit and what kind of garments were cry or tzitzit and when you wear the tzitzit. Okay. So among those laws, in which is it here we have in paragraph twenty-four something stuck in about when you actually do something with the tzitzit. Mitzvah hat tzitzit biatz molit keneged libo b'shaat kriyat you should hold your tzitzit in your left hand. Why your left hand? Because that is the side nearest to your heart when you recite the Shema. Remez, this is symbolic of Vayuha varim Ha'ele al So you don't actually put it you know, on your chest, but you hold it on your heart side. Okay? Um, how many tzitzit? Hold on, Larry. How many? Does it say? Doesn't say. So we don't have anything about two or four here yet. Paragraph four. Many people have the custom to look at the tzitzit when you get up to Ur Itemoto, you shall see them. We saw that also in paragraph sixty one or sixty two where we looked at. Vili tenotam al enayim and to place it on your eyes. Uminha Yafehu. This is a nice minhag v'chibuve Mitzvah. And it shows that you love the mitzvah. It's a, it's a lovely phrasing. Does that mean it is required? No, it is not required. There's some people who want to enact this mitzvah. They want so lovingly to enact this mitzvah that they look at the deceit, they put it on their eyes. It's a beautiful custom, okay? Gloss, which means Ashkenazi comment. Gam no hagim ktsat, which means, ksat means a few people have the custom. To linashek ha tzitzit, bisha ebam, to actually kiss the tzitzit when you look at them. This is all, I'm going to put in quotes now, in air quotes, only. This is all only for showing love of the mitzvah, meaning it's not a requirement. Some people have this custom. Okay. Now look at this. When you look at the tzitzit, when are you supposed to look at the tzitzit? When you say, and you shall look at them in paragraph three, Uri Tamoto. When you look at the tzitzit, mistakel bishnei tzitziot shelafanav. You look at the two tzitzis in front of you. And then there's a whole thing about why and the numerology, which we're not going to get into. But again, what are we struck by? What is missing? Gather the four corners, all four tzitzit. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you one more source, which is the aruch HaShulchan. shulchan Okay, pause for a moment. This is only in Hebrew. In Safari, it's not in English. I'm just going to read a couple of lines and then translate. Okay. Um, and then we'll try to pull it all together. No pun intended, or pun, pun intended. Um Okay, so remember I told you that the Shulchan Aruch is like a digest. It just tells you what the law is. And it's an abridgment of the Beit Yosef, which is the much longer work, which collects all of the the customs by Rav Yosef Karo in the middle 1500s. Around the year 1900, we have two works, two separate works by separate people with those two similar intents. Um, and for those who don't know what these books are, you don't have to worry about it. I just want you to get the concept. One of them, which I think Larry asked about a couple of weeks ago, is the Mishnah Brura. The Mishnah Brura is like the Shulchan Aruch, except 350 years later, because there are more Min that accumulate. And it says, just says, here's what you do. And here's what you do according to Eastern European, Polish, Misnagdisha, you know, Misnagdish, not Hasidic custom. That's what the Mishnah Brura is. The, I'm going to put it in quotes, anti of Rura. I don't mean that they opposed each other, but the opposite kind of work, is a work which is called Aruch HaShulchan. It's called that intentionally because it's play on Shulchan Aruch, but it's a totally different book. And the Aruch HaShulchan collects everything. It's like the Bet Yosef, it has all the minhagim. And sometimes the Aruch HaShulchan will tell you what he thinks you should do, and sometimes not. Sometimes you just say, this one has this minhag, this one has that minhag everyone with me so we're going to look at this same paragraph paragraph 24 in the tzitzit section in the aruch hashulchan approximately 1900 ish ready you with me paul will say could you make that a little bigger can i make it bigger come on get bigger get bigger okay whoa okay paragraph four here's where i am see my cursor some people hold the two Tzitzit in front, uh, that are in front of them during Shema. Same thing that we read in the Shulchan Aruch. And then it has a whole thing about numerology, which I'm not going to get into it. Um, okay, that, that's that. That's, okay, I'm going to stop screen sharing. I thought there was another thing there, but it's not. The other thing is I have another book which is called Tfilah Kahalacha. It's just in a modern Israeli book about here are all the laws of, of prayer. And I'm going to read to you what he says in his footnote about this. He says, Yesh Shekatav. Oh, first of all, there are other passages um, which we haven't looked at in the Shulchan Aruch, which I'm now going to talk briefly about how you hold the tzitzit to bring it all home for burning. First of all, all the sources are universal, as far as I can tell, that you hold the tzitzit between your fourth and fifth finger, which I have never seen anyone do. So I don't quite get that. It's, um, for those who know Hebrew, uh, is Verit still here or is she gone? Verit's gone. It's been kimitsa lezeret, which means between the fourth and the fifth Hebrew. I know a lot of people, the fourth and fifth finger. I know a a lot of people here know Hebrew, but no one knows Hebrew as well as Vera does. So you're supposed to hold it between your fourth and fifth finger. I don't know anyone who does that. Everyone holds it around their second finger or in their hand like this. And however many tzitzit you have, you're supposed to hold them in your left hand during the Shema, except... um, when you get to the third paragraph Iomer, you're supposed to transfer them to your right hand. And that's because Judaism has many prejudices. One of them is dextrism, which means it's prejudiced towards righties, right? And all mitzvot that you do with your hand are supposed to be done with your right hand, unless you're a lefty. There are exceptions to that in terms of which arm you wear a trillin on. I won't get into that. Um, and so... You're supposed to hold it in your right hand during the third paragraph. Um, or there are customs that say that you take it from your left hand to your right hand and you hold it like this. OK, this is the most common. Probably. I haven't gotten to two versus four yet, Bernie. OK, so um sorry. So. When you say the Shema, it is the custom to take the tzitzit in the left hand between your fourth and fifth finger on the left hand why near your heart, and when you get up to the third paragraph, you're supposed to transfer it to your right hand. Okay. Then he has a footnote, which says, um, I'm just going to tell you what it says. It says that two great rabbis, the Gaona Vilna, so the leader of uh, Mis- Misnagdish Ashkenazi Judaism in the late 1700s and Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin, great Eastern European rabbi of the middle to late 1800s, two great Misnagdish yeshivish rabbis would only hold the front to tzitziot during the Shema. That's the comment. That's all it says. Sorry, they would only hold, and they said you should only hold the front to tzitziot. So what does that mean? It means that by the by the late 1700s, Gaona Vilna is around the time of the American Revolution, give or take, right? Founding fathers. Um, By that time, some people had the custom to hold how many tzitzit? Four. All four. And the Gaona Vilna said, but don't do that. Okay? It's only the ones that are in front of you. By the way, you might ask, why would someone object to that? Why would someone object to gathering the four tzitzit? There could be two reasons. One is maybe he didn't like people just making up new customs spontaneously, or maybe because if we, if we just stick with the idea of tzitzit, um, the, the talit, part, what's part of the four corners is um, you're surrounded By God's mitzvot, right? So the reason to gather them is we gather, uh, it symbolizes 613, gather us from the four corners of the earth. So there could be symbolic reasons why we want to enact it the way we do, but there might also be symbolic reasons why to not enact it the way we do. Maybe you should be surrounded at all times by God's mitzvot, Right. So that's another way of thinking of the four corners, by the way, as far as I know, the Vilna Gaon or Haima of and there's no, there is not a, I don't know this for a fact. Right. But I am unaware of a written source that says that that was their reasoning. I'm just trying to say, why do you think one would object to the practice of four corners? I can think of another reason. Go ahead, Michael. To me, it's terribly awkward to gather the two from the back. One is fishing and you're sitting on, right. That's another reason, correct, right. Um, by the way, uh, yeah, uh, if you're wearing a talit katan, they don't necessarily reach all the way around, right? So there's uh, you know all kinds of, we could imagine various reasons so that we know what we know is the Shulchan Aruch, mid 1500s, seems to have no knowledge of four corners gathered together seems to say you gather two. By the late 1700s, the Vilna Gaon is saying the practice is you only gather two. So that means in the 200, 250 years that elapsed, there arose a new custom. By the way, I'm sure there are halachic researchers who could delve into this deeper than I did. This is as as deep as I was able to. So that means somewhere in the next 250 years, it's a custom to gather all four. There are Serious Ashkenazic leading authorities in the late 1700s and the mid to late 1800s who say we don't do that. Somehow, the mostly universal custom has come to be four corners. It's really not universal. Again, I realize I shouldn't I shouldn't mention people's names because this is a podcast, but. but one of our favorite Daily Minion members who isn't coming on Zoom, but a regular in person, doesn't do that, right? His minhag is to go by Chaim of Elajin and the Gaon Mi Vilna, and we don't do any of this. If you asked him, he'd probably say, I don't know where this four corners nonsense comes from. The Shulchan Aruch says, you look at the front two, period, end of story, All right? So in these common non-orthodox shuls, de facto in general, the minhag or practice has become when you say near the end of vahavarabah, the blessing proceeding, vahavienu shalom, may fot ha'aretz, you gather the fourth tzitzit in your, which hand, people? Left. Left hand. See, I'm fumbling. Where is it? Where is it? That's Michael's reason of why not to do it. Okay. You hold it in your left hand, even though um, even though this way, even though the Shulchan Aruch says, hold it between your fourth and fifth finger. Maybe there are people who do that. I just haven't seen it. Maybe I haven't gone to enough yeshivas, okay? You hold it this way, the first two paragraphs. For the third paragraph, you transfer it either to your right hand or you hold it like this. And then the custom, remember the Shulchan Aruch said, And some people have the custom to kiss the tzitzit, and this is a lovely custom. So the custom became, you kiss it five times on the word tzitzit, three times in the paragraph, because the word tzitzit appears in the paragraph three times, kiss. I've heard some people go like this. It's a double kiss. And... No one did that when I was growing up. And then all of a sudden, one year, I heard rabbinical students doing that. And I thought, like, maybe this is a new affectation coming out of Jerusalem. You know, they double kiss. So I don't know the origin of that. Again, my email is abrahamhavivi at gmail.com. If any of our listeners know the origin of the double kiss on each one, please write me and let me know that. So three times on the word tzitzit, on the word emet. And then here's the tricky part. Everyone pay attention. I'm going to go over this when we get to the third paragraph. You know, the Chazin goes, And a lot of people kiss their tzitzit then and drop them. It's the wrong place. The line after that also has the word La'ad. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. We'll get to this when we get to the third paragraph in our next class. And you're actually supposed to kiss it on the second La'ad and then drop it. Why they developed a minhag for the Chazan to say, mm-hmm. I do not know why. It's actually the wrong La'ad to kiss the Tzitzit and put them down. The sources are very clear about when you're supposed to do it. Okay? So, and the sources don't say kiss the Tzitzit, right? Because the sources don't say kiss the Tzitzit these five times. The sources say at La'ad, You put your tzitzit down. You release them. So the custom has become for the maximal tzitzit kissers, which are most of us, to kiss five times, three times on the word tzitzit in the middle of the paragraph, once on the word emet in the transition from the third paragraph to emet vemunah, and then once on the second la'ad, which many people incorrectly do on the first La'ad. And again, here's interesting question about custom. If the sources are very clear that you're supposed to do it on the second La'ad, but everyone in my shul does it on the first La'ad when the chazan says, La'ad kayamet, kiss, put down, and everyone in shul does it, then who's to say what's a right custom and what's a wrong custom, right? Because the Vilna Gaon and Rabbi, Rav Chaim of Elishan, I guess, would say that this thing of gathering your four corners, your four tzitzit, is the wrong custom. But in our shul, everyone does that, I'm saying. So who defines what's the right custom and what's the wrong custom in air quotes. And that's part of the definition of custom as opposed to law. A law means you're supposed to do it this way, but please notice the language of the Shulchan Aruch in lots of places. It says some people have the custom to this and some people have the custom to that. Meaning the, the halachic authorities recognize that there's a distinction between should practices. You should do it this way. And, things that are just customs. I'm gonna say one more thing about that. Traditionally, the way customs are are held or lived by is what they do in your community, what your parent did, what your rabbi says. Not, sorry, and that's generally, uh, I'm gonna make a, a, gross, a, a gross generalization. That's generally the orthodox way of how you have a minhag because that's what my shul does. That's what my rabbi says. That's what my teacher says. That's what I saw my father do with his tzitzit. Okay? As opposed to the common non-orthodox way, which is, I like that minhag. I think that's what I'm going to do. Right? Again, it's the modern... Or the autonomous individual, I decide for myself. I'm going to adopt that minhag. Sorry. Now, there are plenty of times when I do that myself. So I'm saying it a little bit with mockery, but I do that also. But I just want to say, that's the American modern way of why you have a minhag, because I decided to pick that minhog, as opposed to I. the traditional way is I say, Rabbi, what is the correct minhog about the tzitzit? And the rabbi might say, this is how I do it, but you don't have to do it that way. It's all minhag. If you grew up in a different home, you don't have to. Or the rabbi might say, this is our synagogue's practice. Right? Um, that's the traditional way of knowing what your minhag is. Right? It's either how I'm going to be very sexist. Sorry, I, I'm, I'll cop to being really sexist right? back in the era. How your fa- what your father did with his tzitzit or how your mother kept a kosher kitchen. Right? The traditional way of minhag is what you grew up with, what they did in your community. You're not sure what the law is. You ask the rabbi. Not, we like this minhag, so we're going to start doing this. I once said to an Orthodox rabbi, by the way, the shortest amount of time, does, does anyone know the shortest amount of time you can end Shabbos in any of the sources is 24 minutes after sunset, which means 42 minutes after candle lighting. So there's a halachic source, that says you may end Shabbat 42 minutes after candlelighting. You can say Havdalah. No one does it that way, to my knowledge. There's no living Jewish community that does it that way. So I once said to an Orthodox rabbi, modern Orthodox rabbi, like, what do you think about people adopting the old custom from the old sources of you may end Shabbat, say Havdalah, as early as 42 minutes after candlelighting? He said, why would you adopt a custom that no living jewish community practices anymore right it's like saying just because was it rabbi yosi i think it was rabbi yosi not sure who it is in the gemara one of the tanaim is reported in the talmud that he ate chicken with milk he didn't consider chicken to be fleshic. okay like so, can we say the way the halachic system works? Can we say if you keep kosher, I eat chicken with milk? No, because the answer is no one has done that since Rabbi in the year 150. Okay, so no, no authoritative source since Rabbi has ever thought the chicken is not fleshic. You can't just say. I found a passage in the Talmud that says that Rabbi Yossi did this and I am choosing to adopt it. That is not the way the halachic system works. There are all kinds of rules. There are authorities. There are early authorities. There are later authorities. There are big masters. There are lesser masters. There's law. There's minhag. You can't just say, I found something in a book and I like it. So that's what I'm going to do. I decide I'm going to triple kiss my tzitzit. Each time, right? You can't just say I'm going to make up a minhag or I like a minhag. Okay, Terry, I'm going to take one very short question because we're really up till nine. We got to stop. I, I think I'm not. I think I'm going to say for questions about that we're going to because I raced through the when you kiss. I'm going to go over the when you kiss again I haven't... In, in early January um, because that will also lead us into the third paragraph. So I'm going to review that. And then I will take questions about Minhag and custom. Terry. Can I ask an unrelated question then. Go ahead. So I, I want to ask a question about the um, celestial phenomena that we're all marveling at. Yes, right I, I was going to mention that. So everyone should watch, you know, Jupiter and Saturn. They got close together. I guess now they're probably going to get apart because that's how it goes. And it made me think of Yotzer wrote and all that stuff we talked about in the first paragraph of the Shema blessings Yotzer know go ahead terry so the my question is uh, when i'm looking it up online what yes. how do you say it's just so amazing and um, so i've got the um I, I, yeah. so for all for all natural phenomena all unique and special natural phenomena that are not covered explicitly by one of the other brachot you can find in your siddur, like there is a bracha for when you see the ocean right. for the first time in 30 days, or <sighs> smelling certain smells or lightning or thunder. So if there's any natural phenomenon that you see that is amazing, that shows you God's handiwork, that is not covered by any of the other things, you say, Osem HaSeb Reh, Baruch HaTashem, Osama HaSeb Shit, who did the work of creation. Yeah. So if you didn't say it last night, you should probably go outside and say it tonight before Jupiter sets, which is about seven thirty p m yeah yeah okay, okay. Abby, this has just been amazing i I've loved the these sessions. Thank you so much and thank you happy sylvester happy happy uh solstice, which I guess is last night i don 't know, and happy Sylvester and happy conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which shows hashem 's amazing handiwork. And I'll see you guys, God willing, in, 20, in 2021, two weeks from now. Thank, Thank you. Have a good day. Uh, can yep. I try to screen share for a second? Can yes. You, I don't know if you can. Yes. Not coming in. Go ahead. This is my Israeli Orthodox yep. pocket Sidur. Yeah. In it, of course, it, it says that you uh, kiss at the second law Correct. I mean, that's the only instructor. doesn't give instructions for kissing any other time. But that... Correct. You know. It's correct. Correct. It's correct. And everyone does it wrong. Okay. Signing uh, off. Bye. I mean, did you know that the Vinagon was cited when the NCAA adopted the shot clock? Go ahead, Larry. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> they said he didn't like the four corners. Okay. Oh, but I'm no. bum. Okay. Ooh. And on that note, have a good day. Thank Bye, you. guys. Bye.